Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 9. At the moment when John Lennon was pronounced dead, his surgeons heard All My Loving over the hospital loudspeaker. Tonight, the hospital has Lou Reed on instead. The place, like its main surroundings, is in muted neared silence. Linoleum floors, acid chemical smells, white sheets. Why do they use white sheets? To bleach, he assumes. And the room, room being a generous term, holds that scant, white towels in his family's home in Martha's Vineyard, hotel smells paired with the chlorine pool on the first floor. Once, he and Scully were put up in Hilton for a team-building conference that had made him want to gouge his eyes out with World Place Weekend 1994 signature pencil every attendee received, and their rooms adjoined, and when they checked in, she asked about the pool on the first floor. Was there a lap lane? For reasons he would never understand, she'd been trying to lose weight. Yes, there was a lap lane. The pool was open from 10 in the morning to 10 at night. Would she like a tour? Of course she wouldn't. She leaned on her little suitcase. The same suitcase as always, the scratch on its side having appeared sometime after Christmas 1993. They rolled their suitcases into the elevator while other business casuals piled in. And because of the tight proximity, her side had been pressed to his, their suitcases touching. Her little shoe dwarfed alongside his bigger one. She asked someone towards the front to press the floor for, please. He'd held his breath. If he closes his eyes, then the bleach smell reminds him of hotels, not of hospitals. She liked to use one towel for her hair and one for her body. So she opened their adjoining doors and asked for any of his spares. Afterwards, he heard the door to her room click shut. And though he hadn't brought a swimsuit with him, he wanted to follow her down three floors to the pool. Look at her mild and pretty swimsuit conservative and covering her belly, meant for doing laps at the Y and nothing else. Vacations? She didn't take vacations. But he wanted to follow her down to the pool and pretend that they were sharing one. Children for whom a hotel pool was the most magical place in the world. Back floats and closed eyes, diving down and letting the air out of their lungs so that they could sit at the very bottom. He wanted to know what color her hair turned when it was wet. But then again, he already knew, didn't he? Brunette. Just a little and dark. But as her hair dried, he started to see the warm flecks of red, and it was frizzy naturally. She used thick, creamy products to tame it down. Plastic lounge chairs, a hamper of used towels, leftover magazines from the last patrons, families hoping desperately to tire inexhaustible children out. And then they would go back upstairs, and they would shower in separate rooms, and they would come together on his bed and buy pay-per-view on the bureau's dime. Her hair would be put up in a towel, wrapped around in that way women know how to do while men had no clue. Her toenails painted light blue, because in winter, she sought out happier colors, kept secret underneath boots. The scent of her shampoo, so familiar because, even though he didn't mind using the tiny hotel bottles, she insisted on bringing her own on every trip. He would hope she would fall asleep midway through, and he would turn the volume all the way down, and he would wait a few minutes before waking her, keeping still alongside her, breathing deeply, and making these moments count. Remember this, he would tell himself. Remember this. You'll need this to tide you over. And then he would wake her, and she would rub her eyes as she walked back to her own room and said, We'll watch it tomorrow instead. 
But when he opens his eyes, he's in an emergency room, and she's in a bed in front of him, and they put her in a gown because her clothes were stained with vomit, and he can't tell if she's asleep or not, finds himself too worried to ask. He can't wake her. Not now. Starch sheets, pulled too tightly, hospital corners. Scully makes the bed whenever they leave a motel room. Though the hospital had been empty when they arrived, though he managed a parking space tantalizing close to the entrance, there was still a line in the emergency room, a line they promptly hopped when he came in carrying her bridal style in his arms, her body too warm, the binder of all her medical information left in the car for now because he couldn't wait to bring her in, pulled the keys from the ignition and raced out of the driver's seat and towards her, asking her if she could walk and wincing when she shook her head. When the nurse tried to place an intravenous line, Scully had to turn her head away, keep her eyes closed. Though she could do such a thing to be a patient, she couldn't watch one being inserted into her own vein. This time, she hadn't bled. Because she has a penicillin allergy, her left wrist sports a red bandage on top of the standard white one. Above her, an almost empty bag of saline hangs. She's dehydrated. They'll hang some antibiotics for her shortly. And because her veins were tired of tubes and medications and pain, the pump for the fluids kept getting blocked and sounding off in loud beeps that only the nurse could turn off. Finally, the machine is quieted, and he can't stand the thought of waking her. Take your coat off, she says softly, giving him his answer. Their makeshift room is just a hospital bed, a single chair that forces his knees against the bed, and a curtain for privacy. Eventually, she'll be brought to a real room on another floor, admitted to treat whatever nasty infection her weakened immune system let fester. But for now, they're stuck in emergency. The light's on overhead and the hour well past four. Looking at her, he sees the exhaustion, the overwhelm. The bags under her eyes puff out like bruises, her hair is a mess, and the thin blankets are pulled up over her shoulders, both because she's cold and because she feels exposed in a too big gown made for someone twice her size. He wishes he could hold her. You look strange, she says. He went out for the binder after Scully was in a bed, his thoughts racing as he unlocked the car, grabbed what he needed, and froze as he noticed on the passenger seat the beanie baby cat he'd bought at the Lobster Pounds gift shop. Opening up the hang tag, he read the name and the little poem, the birth date. Why give a stuffed animal a birth date? Because people are crazy about beanie babies nowadays, children and collectors alike. He didn't understand the craze, and doubted Scully had nosed the cat against the small of her back as he drove too fast down winding main roads. Pocketing the cat in his coat, he headed back inside with the binder in his hands, and he hasn't taken off his coat since. It's cold, he says, while well, he takes the coat off, a contradiction, and she smiles uncomfortably when she sees his clothes, heavy pajamas, and a sweater over the top. Neither of them planned a trip to the hospital tonight. He hangs the coat off a pointed piece of something on the wall that he probably shouldn't hang his coat off of, and then the nurse returns with broad-spectrum intravenous antibiotics, something to start on while they wait for Scully's blood work to come back, and some intravenous Zofrin, thank goodness. He doesn't have the strength to ever watch her vomit again. Scully makes easy small talk with the nurse. We're from out of state. This is our honeymoon. We've both been to Maine before. We weren't expecting this to happen. And he stares down at his shoes, is it a violation to watch the nurse tear open an alcohol swab, twist together two new tubes, throw away the bag of saline? He folds his hand together, and his wedding band feels particularly cold. The nurse walks out, slides the privacy curtain back into place, and then Scully asks, What's in your pocket? My pocket? He looks down at his pants, but they're flannel pajamas, no pockets. 
No, your coat pocket, she specifies. And he looks over at his coat and grimaces. The cat. It's bulging right there. Though he could pretend it's just his gloves all folded up, she would catch him in that lie so easily. You never wear gloves. That's why your hands are chapped all winter. But he doesn't want to tell her the truth. He impulse purchased a stuffed animal at a gift shop while waiting for dinner. Even though he finds nothing shameful in that objective statement, he cringes anyway. Chip the cat. For wife. It echoes in his mind over and over again. Chip the cat. For wife. He can't lie to her, but it hurts to pull the stuffed animal from his pocket, to lean forward and bump his knees on the side of the hospital bed, to set the cat alongside her cathedered arm, soft fur against her bare skin. And she furrows her brows, runs her pointer finger gently along the stuffed animal. Where'd you find one of these? She asks, looking up at him. He stares at the cat instead, embarrassed. A gift shop, he says, a blush coming to his cheeks. He could have said the lump was his gloves. It's such a big craze, she says, an incredulous laugh bubbling over her lips. And he's tense in his uncomfortable chair in a whitewashed hospital in this place where neither of them can rest because the machines kept sounding off, in this cursed and wretched building that took him forever to find while she closed her eyes and worked through breathing exercises in the passenger seat, trying not to be sick. She didn't bleed this time. He thinks back to her last chemotherapy treatment, the hot red stain on her arm, the look on her face as she realized she was bleeding, the fear. Then he stares down at her arm, the catheter making him wince. But there's no blood this time. There's no blood. There's no blood. You're sweet, she says, voice quiet, a secret between them, and he watches as she strokes her finger from the top of the cat's head to its little button nose, petting it. Though he wants to say so many things, I saw it and it made me think of you, but that's ridiculous because everything everywhere makes me think of you. I'm so sorry this is so strange. I love you. He can't find the words, his hands tense in his lap, his body rigid. He really hadn't wanted to show her this. He had hoped he would find a child downtown, maybe to pawn it off on. He thought it was such a stupid purchase. But when he looks up at her, his thoughts fade away. There are little tears on her cheeks, resigned tears, happy tears. And somehow, despite their surroundings, despite the night she's had, she's smiling. Thanks, she says, the word lackluster and she reaches out with her untethered hand to dry the tears, and he wishes he could hold her. He wishes she could move her arm without setting off alarms. He wishes they could go back home and curl up together. Plenty of wood in the stove, but the bedroom window open from time to time so that she could listen to the waves. Their book in his lap, her eyes closed as he reads to her. Or on the couch, legs tucked up while he makes dinner. Something palatable, something easy. And he has old records playing, and he's putting on finishing touches. She walks up behind him and wraps her arms around him, her cheekbone against one of his vertebrae. He wishes he could kiss her one more time. She splays her fingers next to the cat, so he reaches out, does what she asks, holds her hand, and her fingers are so small against his, and he looks down at their joined hands, bleached hospital sheets, and not warm enough blankets, plastic tubing and skin, the little cat against their fingers, and he thinks, I wish I could take a picture. She asks for her toothbrush, plus mouthwash from the store if he could manage it, and a fresh pair of pajamas because she vomited on the spare pair he brought with them, and something warm to wear, and a blanket, something cozy. She's been so cold all night that he had to put his coat over her to help her sleep. 
At eight, they move her upstairs to a real hospital room, thankfully a private one, with the window that looks out at trees and the very distant Portland, and she asks for her toothbrush, plus mouthwash if he can manage it. He didn't have a chance to write each thing down, so he pulls them from his memory as he drives. Toothpaste. Mouthwash. Blanket. Something warm to wear. As soon as she mentioned something warm, he thought of his own sweatshirts and sweaters, then wondered if maybe, just maybe, she alluded to those. Before he left, he told the on-call nurse about the medical binder, left it on a chair in Scully's room, took a piece of paper from the nurse's station, and wrote down his phone number, just in case. Would they mind calling him if Scully so much as woke up? And he's driving too fast now because he's far away from her, and she's alone, and he promised. He promised. He promised plenty of things. He promised he would be there. He promised he would. He stops for mouthwash first, because the thought of going to the nearest grocery store after finishing up at the cottage makes him wince. And is there anything else he can bring her? Flowers? No, he doesn't want her to stay in the hospital long enough to need flowers, so he won't so much as look at the display as he walks by. A card? He doesn't know what people bring to loved ones in hospitals, and all she really wanted was her toothbrush and some clothes, and maybe, but maybe not, one of his warmer shirts. Still, the grocery store is similar enough to the hospital to numb his mind, so he walks down the aisles, starts to feel less on edge as he looks at air fresheners, laundry detergent, cleaning products. Is there bathroom cleaner at the cottage? Because he doesn't know, he puts some into his basket and adds paper towels too. What else? He could bring her a magazine, but he doubts she wants to read a magazine. Then, he finds disposable cameras. Kodak, with the signature yellow and red paper over top, telling him to wind up after every shot. The most recent photograph of them together is their wedding picture, the one she stuck in her journal. They need more pictures. So many more. And the house is too cold and smells like vomit. He winces as he walks in, as he looks at the rush mess he left the place in. So the bathroom. He'll need to wash the bath mat and all the towels. He breathes through his mouth and thanks himself for not eating anything so far today. And he opens every window in the cottage, and he flushes the toilet, and he turns on the bathroom fan, and he puts the bath mat and towels and all of her stained clothes into the washer, and he scrubs the bathroom floor. He scrubs the room of the toilet, the inside, the seat. It's all stained. And by the time that his arms tire enough for him to take a break, he realizes that his ragged breaths aren't from the work. No, he's crying, hiccuping with the overwhelm. And he drops his rags, and against his better judgment, he holds his head in his hands, hunched over on the bathroom floor, the emotions flooding out of him all at once. Scully on the bathroom floor. Had she hit her head or fainted or fallen asleep? She was so sick in the car, and all she needed was an anti-emic and specific antibiotics that would be administered as soon as they knew what infection she had. With broad-spectrum ones already circulating through her body, she would be okay. For now, she would be okay. They still have time. Against all odds, they still have time. But that time comes as no comfort now. Not while he's consumed by the memory of her on his bathroom floor. Fine only hours earlier. Holding him in bed. Telling him that they were past the point in the book. Would it all come on that quickly in the end? Would either of them truly know when it was time? The washer sounds off. Done with the cycle. He has no idea what time it is. Peeling himself from the floor... He goes to take the clothes and towels and mat out as he realizes that this place doesn't have a dryer. Of course it doesn't. This is a summer rental. There must be a clothesline somewhere. There's a box of pins next to the laundry detergent on the shelf above. And when he walks outside to find the clothesline to the far left of the driveway, 
close enough to the thicket of trees for him to miss it altogether. The world outside is just as cold as the cottage is inside, the fire having gone out, all the windows left open. But the sun is bright and warm, making him squint. He sets the box of clothespins on top of one of the line posts, then gracelessly, he's never done this before, and he's still hiccuping with tears, hangs up her pajamas, their towels, the bath mat that is no longer stained. Once he's done, he watches for a moment how the light breeze picks up her clothes and makes the garments look as though they're floating. Going back inside, he finds the disposable camera he bought and reads the instructions on its label, looks through the viewfinder, tests the thing out by accident, ends up taking a picture of the ground. Then he heads back outside and frames the laundry in the morning light, clicks the button, winds up the dial. When they head home, they'll have the pictures developed, and he'll show her what she missed. When he returns to the hospital, she's awake, and the window in her room lets in plenty of light, and she softens as she watches him come in, holding in one hand a paper shopping bag filled with the things she asked for, and in the other, a big warm blanket from the cottage. The cat is set down next to her pillow, keeping watch. Thank you so much, she says, using her arms to help her sit up in bed. I'm freezing. And because the door is shut, because she's stuck in a hospital gown and exhausted and too cold, she stands and starts undoing the ties on her gown as she sets the paper bag down beside her. Quickly, he turns away and faces the door, trying to give her privacy. But he can hear her piercing through each item in the bag, wishes he could pick out the flannel pajamas for her, then hand her his sweatshirt to keep her warm. Instead, he gives her a moment, then two, then three. And does she have what she wanted? She's being too quiet. Should he look? He cranes his neck, just barely peeking, and thankfully, she's dressed. The right sleeve of her pajama rolled up to keep her intravenous catheter from tangling up in her clothes. So she can't wear his sweatshirt even if she wanted to. Why didn't he think of that? Still, he's holding a blanket for her. Maybe he thought of enough. Maybe he brought her everything she needed. Then, he watches her reach down into the bag and take out his sweatshirt. A nicer one for casual weekends, not oil-stained or unwashed for months. This one he wears on his way to the track on cold fall mornings and doesn't put back on afterwards for fear of sweat stains. She holds the sweatshirt to her face and he looks away, staring at the door, staring at anything but her. You can turn around, she says. She's taking her toothbrush, toothpaste, and mouthwash into the little bathroom while dragging the IV pole behind her, leaving the door open as she washes up. Main hospitals have HBO, apparently. The remote's on the bed. Find us something good. So he sets the blanket down, sits at the foot of the bed, and picks up the remote, turning the little television hanging opposite of her bed on, flips through the news, daytime talk shows, soap operas, and then, shockingly enough, HBO. Just like old times, he half-jokes to himself. Motel signs advertising a service they had that others lacked. Another motor court, another case, another piece of small-town America. Though Mission Impossible is on one channel, the English patient on another, he pauses on Lady and the Tramp. The right tone for their morning, something light, something comforting. As she leaves the bathroom, he sets the remote back down on the bed, offers to help her climb back into bed, but is unsurprised when she rejects his help. She keeps to one side of the bed, the side closest to her cathedered arm, then taps on the side of the bed, inviting him in. He takes off his coat first, slips out of his shoes, then lies down beside her, careful not to touch her. Reaching for the blanket, he pulls it up over both of them, helps her warm up. A Disney movie, she says in an are-you-serious tone, but he can sense that she's relieved, 
happy even. Alongside him, she relaxes her body, slack and tired. No more frustration, no more pain. It sounded familiar, he says, and when she laughs, he's glad she got the joke. I don't know how long I'll stay awake. Me neither. I want you to kiss me. And it's forward enough to make her voice crack, but normal enough that he doesn't think as he turns towards her and kisses her, surprising her as he does so. But she eases against him, exhales, closes her eyes, and for a moment, they're not in a hospital anymore. They're at the wharf in Portland, and she's making fun of him for asking if they can see the whales from here, and he's squinting over a map in an attempt to find a bookstore to shop at. Then he buys her a cup of hot tea and a chocolate croissant at a cafe, and she pushes her hair behind her ears before she tears off a piece, and he takes out the disposable camera and photographs her before she can protest. Instead, he breaks off the kiss and turns towards the little television, the volume loud enough to hear, but soft enough not to keep them from falling asleep. She reaches beneath the blanket for his hand. He takes hers in his, squeezing gently. On screen, the two dogs order spaghetti and meatballs. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.